I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. We want a man in black. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. My name is Optimus Prime. I am the future of war. Resistance is futile. Yes, it's Jedi's strength flows from the Force. But beware of the dark side. It's been nice ring, but I mean, it's not technically accurate. It's a gold ticket. You outlawed. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. This is uh, Reed's Cult, and you're listening to Frank's and Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody. This is Mark Daniels from the great Pacific Northwest, and you are listening to Trex in Sci-Fi. This is episode 481 for Sunday, November 21st, 2021. I'm back this week with another classic science fiction movie. Today's movie is the cult classic from 1956. It's the Mole People. Before I get into today's podcast, I want to thank Rico for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoy it. With that said, I'm going to play the trailer to the mole people. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. I'll be back after the trailer with some movie information, and then we'll get into today's movie. B.C. To reach this lost civilization, science had followed a trail through burning desert sands, through the roaring avalanches of Mount Kuitara, and finally deep into the bowels of the earth. Not even history had recorded the existence of this unknown empire of darkness. There is no world beyond ours. If I ever get out of here, into my world, the world of light and flowers. Would you come with me? Never before had outsiders beheld such sights. The sacred ritual of the sun death. The blazing sacrificial chambers. The court of the all-powerful high priests of Ishtar. You will die in the fire of Ishtar. The blood-lusting mole people storming from their subterranean caverns.
The Mole People is a 1956 American science fiction adventure film distributed by Universal International. It was directed by Virgil Vogel and produced by William Alland. The story was written by Laszlo Goreg. The Mole People was released December 1st, 1956 and has a running time of 77 minutes. And here's the cast starting at the top. John Agar as Dr. Roger Bentley. Cynthia Patrick as Adele. Hugh Bonemont as Dr. Judd Bellamine. Alan Napier as Elenu, the High Priest. Nestor Pava as Professor Etienne Lafarge. Phil Chambers as Dr. Paul Stewart. Rod Redring as Nazar. Robin Hughes as First Officer. And Frank Baxter as himself. And that's it for movie information. Now let's get into today's movie. Today's movie starts with a narration from Dr. Frank Baxter, an English professor for the University of Southern California and a TV personality. He explains the premise of today's movie and its basis in reality. Ladies and gentlemen, it's amazing how much we know about the surface of our globe. In the last hundred years, men have progressively studied this Explorations have reached the North, the South Pole. There are really relatively only a few square miles left of the surface of our globe that are not known. During the same years, men have reached out into the stars. Three times further in your lifetime and mine, three times further into space than men have ever been able to go before. Amazing knowledge we have of that and of this. What's inside this globe? What is there beneath our feet? as we stand on the earth. No one knows, of course, and science ponders about it, and all men are curious, but no one knows. Primitive man going into caves, reaching back and back and down and down, wondered what lay beyond, and in terror he fled out, and he remembered strange sighs and noises. Now you go back to Mesopotamia, in the beginning of Western civilization, and you have the great hero Gilgamesh going down into the underworld. And so too with the Greeks, all down through time. Religions of the past have postulated the existence of this inner habitable world. All through the Middle Ages, people believed of something under the surface. Dante, the great Dante, saw a great cone-like cavity stretching down to the very center of the earth. There's nothing new about this. It's as old as man, this belief that under the surface there may be areas inhabitable by man. And in our time, and in the last hundred years, there have been a number of theories, very curious and strange theories, about what goes on in the center of our planet. This is a very famous and interesting and odd one. A soldier, rather a minor hero, the War of 1812, was a man named John Cleve Sims. And he had a sudden idea that inside our world, like onion layers, there were globes within globes, five of them, some of them inhabited, and that if you were to travel up through the icy wastes of our world, the northwest edge of Siberia, you could go down through a hole and go successively to these various spheres. Unfortunately, he was thoroughly obsessed with this, went around lecturing, and in fatigue, died before he could make this experiment. Now, here's another theory much closer to us. This is 1870, about a young American physician named Cyrus Reed Teed had a revelation. 
We are not living on the outside of the globe, said T, but on the inside. That when we think we're looking out at the sun, we're really looking in at the sun. Strange, strange, questing mind of man that tries to find answers to things that he can't understand. This was a theory by Karl Neupert in Germany in the 1920s. He again imagined that we're living on the inside rather than the outside of the globe. And here's a real sun and a real moon, and then a rather shadowy and formless mass of electric potentiality with little bright sparks in it, and they give us the sense of our stars. And so in this picture you're about to see, you'll see the culmination of a long series of such desires to look into the earth. One might well believe philosophically that some ancient culture engulfed by a great and tremendous upheaval of nature might linger on in some pocket of earth. This is science fiction, of course. It's a fiction. It's a fable beyond fiction. For I think if you'll study this picture and think about it when it's over, you'll realize that this is something more than just a story told. It's a fable with a meaning and a significance for you and for me in the 20th century. Thank you and goodbye. Today's movie takes place in Asia. Archaeologist Dr. Roger Bentley leads a team, including Dr. Paul Stewart, Dr. Judd Bellaman, and Etienne Lafarge on a dig for Sumerian artifacts. Dr. Bentley, Dr. Stewart, come quickly. Come on, Lafarge, come on. sort of stone tablet. What's it doing in this strata? The cuneiform writing, but it is not possible in this part. You mean it's not probable, Lafarge? In archaeology, all things are possible. The fact is, we found it below the great flood level, so it must be at least 5,000 years old which would make it one of the oldest human records. What about the inscription? Sumerian. It's a dedication of a temple or a public building. Steward, every time I think of how many civilizations have crumbled, fallen apart, rotted from the inside or cracked from the outside, I shudder when I pick up the front page of a newspaper. The translation, Bentley. Sure. First part reads, I, Sharu, king of kings, son of Sharuad. Breaks off there. Charo. Well, that's a new one on me. Mean anything to you, Lafarge? Dr. Bentley, do you remember the Gilgamesh tablets George Smith found? Yeah, they told a legend about a dynasty that suddenly disappeared from the face of the earth. Right. It also referred to a king of the dynasty, one called Charu or Charu. Well, what does the rest of us say? He who with malice destroys, effaces, or removes from its place this my signed attestation. May he be denounced by Ishtar. May his name, his seed, in the land be destroyed. During a sudden earth tremor, the tablet is broken, but the next day a worker uncovers an oil lamp whose inscription tells the tale of Sharu, who constructed an ark to rescue his people from a massive flood.
We'll have to open new trenches tomorrow along the North Line, Judd. Most of the old ones caved in. That earthquake put us behind at least a month. Ah, you know what I mean. We shouldn't complain about the work. I think we were fortunate. The epicenter of the earthquake was only 25 miles from here. You think the goddess of Ishtar is punishing us for removing the tablets to fight? The inscription said, he who removes it with malice, but we aren't malicious, are we? We want to rescue the Sharu dynasty from oblivion. That's what archaeologists are for, no? Archaeologists are underpaid publicity agents for deceased royalty. <laughs> This shepherd boy found something. What, another one? This boy came a long way, Dr. Bellman. You buys your ticket and you takes your chance. I believe in grabbing for the gold ring every time. Hey, where'd you find this? Kuitara, hi, hi. Kuitara, the epicenter of the earthquake. kind of moss that is native to this region. It grows only on the rocks of Kuitara, but not where the boy found it. Much, much higher. The earthquake must have dislodged it and rolled it down to the plateau. But how did it get up on Kuitara to begin with? Maybe Bentley has the answer. How's it coming, Raj? It's an oil lamp, all right, shaped like a boat. The engraved figures are of a man, a woman, different animals in pairs. The Sumerian version of Noah's Ark? Exactly. The flood's been proven to be a historical fact. Why not a Sumerian version? According to the inscription, they got wet, too. Listen. I, Sharu, king of kings, son of Sharuat. From water I emerged. I caused to embark within the vessel all my family, my relations, my craftsmen and my slaves and the beasts of the field. And made my home in the ark. We floated on the waves until we found the land of the snow near the goddess of Ishtar. At top of the mountain, the Sharu dynasty was saved from the flood on Kuitara. But was never heard of again. Of course not. No one would look for human beings on top of Kuitara. We're going to. It's impossible. The summit is less than 20,000 feet. It's treacherous. Always wind and snow. Nothing's there. Nothing. Then we shouldn't be afraid of nothing. Roger arranges for an expedition to the top of the mountain, and they set off on their treacherous winter climb. Led by their guide, Nazar, they struggle up the mountain, narrowly surviving an avalanche, and after finally reaching the summit, they encounter the ruins of a Sumerian temple. I don't understand. They usually built their cities near their temples. Where are the rest of the buildings? 5,000 years is a long time. To make any sense out of all this is going to take a while. I think we ought to send Nazar back for his men and set up permanent camp here. Dr. Bentley! Bellamy! Take a look at this! The goddess of Ishtar? Right. How did the inscription on the oil lamp go? We floated on the waves till we found the land of the snow near the goddess of Ishtar. 
Wait till Stewart sees this. While walking around the ruins, Paul falls through a crack in the ground, disappearing into a deep crevice. The others go after him, and after a long descent, they find Paul dead. They prepare to climb out, but when Nazir taps a loose rope tether, a rock slide commences killing himself and trapping the other three inside the mountain. Roger, noting that the caves they are in have been previously excavated, leads them on a search for another way out, while Etienne grows progressively weak and nervous. Finally, they reach a huge, dimly lit cabin and discover a piece of a statue of Ishtar, which indicates that Roger that they have stumbled onto Sharu's ancient buried city. What do you make of the light? Probably some chemical in the rocks. And there must be some rational scientific explanation for this. An exact duplicate of the head we found on the plateau. Here, gentlemen, is your city. It's fabulous. The city must have been built on a thick crust of earth over a volcanic bubble. Strong enough to support the city until an earthquake came along. What we found on the plateau were the suburbs. You're right. Look here. The temple of Ishtar have I built with the stones of the mountain, Sharu. That's how the Sharu dynasty ended. They ran away from a flood right into an earthquake. The children of Noah survived. The children of Ishtar died. There's going to be some history rewritten when we get out of here. How do you know there's a way out? There has to be. We'll keep looking. How long can we keep looking? We've been on our feet now, over 15 hours. Yeah, we got to get some rest. Well, this is as good a place as any. I think I'll sleep forever. How is it? It's as if the whole mountain were lying on my chest. We're going to get out of here. Don't worry. Now get some sleep. The men lie down to rest, but are quickly attacked by mole-like creatures who drag them through the soil into a cave prison. There, skeletons of some unfortunate mole people are shackled to the wall, and the scientists examine the skeletons, large skulls, and long claw-like fingers. What were they? I couldn't see a thing. I couldn't either. Shut, come here. Take a look at this. Claw marks. Maybe a hand. Four cuts. Some hand. Whoever it was needs a manicure. It can't be. It can't be. Save your battery, Raj. There's no way out of here. We were brought in. There has to be a way out. (laughs) 
do you think, Judd? I'm no anthropologist. I wouldn't know whether they were Cro-Magnon or Neanderthal. I don't think an anthropologist could classify this one either. All we can say for sure is that they walk erect... And they have a skull large enough to house a brain with associative areas. And this one died as a result of a blow from a heavy blunt instrument. Well, that's a sign of higher civilization. Pinchley! What is it? Look! No, don't. Soon guards take the men to a temple filled with the underground civilization's other inhabitants, Samaritans, who are 3,000-year-old ancestors were trapped underground after an earthquake and who have remained faithful to their ancient customs. In my hand I hold the magic eye of Ishtar, the sacred weapon of Ishtar, the golden rod. The secret of death. There, O king, are the evil ones who were captured by the beasts of the dark. Bring them here. Who are you? We are friends. We are different from you, but we are your friends. He speaks our tongue. We come from a world where your tongue can be studied on ancient tablets. There is no world beyond ours. There is only heaven, where we lived a long time ago, until we were expelled for our sins amidst thunder and fire. This is the world, and we are its people. You are not of us. There is heaven, and only the gods live there. Would you tell us that you are gods? The greatest find of all time, and we're buried with it. In the name of the king, I declare sentence upon you. If you are evil spirits, you must be destroyed. If you are mortal, as you claim, our world cannot support you. In either case, you must be destroyed. You will die in the fire of Ishtar. After centuries of living inside the mountain, the Sumerians have evolved into albinos who cannot tolerate direct light. The archaeologists are brought before the head priest Ilinu and the king Sharu, who believes the strangers to be evil spirits and sentences them to death. The guards attack, but after Roger shines his flashlight on them, they fall in agony, and Sharu declares the strangers to be holy messengers bearing the light, or what they call the fire of Ishtar. Roger and Judd flee into the tunnels and stumble upon the mole creature's hellish lair, where they are whipped and starved by the Sumerians. A panicked Etrian attracts the attention of a mole person who kills him and then runs off. Ilinu finds Roger and Judd in the tunnels. Although he remains skeptical of their divinity, he invites him to a feast. Now we're right back where we started. 
There's bound to be a way out of here. There's fresh air. It has to come from somewhere. Why don't I go back to the river and try and swim out? Uh, you know as well as I do that river runs underground for months. In the king's name, do not use the burning light. We come to you as friends. Well, you count on that. What do you want? Since you have shown that you possess the divine fire of Ishtar, the king is now convinced that you are holy messengers. Are you speaking only for your king? The king's will is law for all. He has ordered me to assure you of his friendship and to invite you to a royal feast. We're most grateful. Where is the absent one? Uh, uh, he was called back to heaven by Ishtar. Follow me. And why did Ishtar send you to our kingdom? To see how you live? To learn of your needs so she can help you. Does she not know us through our prayers? Does she not reward us for our sacrifices? Does she not see us with her all-pervading eyes? We are her eyes. Then you will see. Our kingdom is your home. Mushrooms. Why not? It's one of the few things that can grow without the sun. Come here. Do not interfere. The king's will is the law. The fire of Ishtar is the law. So be it. You have fondness for her, have you not? Yes. She belongs to you. Go. The gods do not favor trading human beings. Human? <laughs> she is a mocked one. Are there many like her? No. Rarely is one born with the mark of darkness. And the others, like yourselves. How many are there? Twice and a half times sixty. Well, that's not very many. It is a sacred number. The highest number that our sacred food can nourish. Well, what do you do when your population exceeds that number? We kill them. We sacrifice them in the fire of Ishtar, the like of which you possess within that cylinder. Speak. The beasts of the dark have desecrated our dead. They took the body of the guard that was slain by the intruders. When they were finished with it, they left it in the tunnel. All the flesh had been torn from the body. You have apprehended them? I have, O oh priest. Kill them. Let us now bless the spirit of the earth. Ishtar has given us the food of the tunnels, the fish of the river, and the sacred milk of the goat. Above all, we glorify Ishtar for giving us power over the beasts of the dark, that they may till the earth beneath us, so that Charu, king of kings, his children and his children's children, may live in strength and rule the world. So be it. Roger and Judd learn the history of the Sumerians, who, because they can grow only enough mushrooms to support 150 of their people, must kill the rest. Roger stops the guards from cruelly whipping a non-albino girl named Adele, whose relatively dark skin has condemned her to slavery. Well, even if there is a way out, we'll never find it. Not without help. 
You mean the albinos? No. Well, surely you don't expect the beasts of the tunnel to help us. Why should they after what's been done to them? 5,000 years of slavery, a planned degeneration has turned men into beasts. There's no help there, Judd. Thank you, Adele. Lie down, my lord. Oh, uh, go right ahead, Raj. Don't mind me. I will watch you while you're away. Away? In your dream. What about you? When do you sleep, Adele? Or do you? I sleep when my sleeping time comes. Your sleeping time? But how are you able to tell? Here, in my heartbeat. One, two, three. But you're not counting all the time, are you? No, I just feel it all the time. What happens when your heart beats faster? It matters not. It is my heart. It is my time. It's okay, Dad. You, you'd better go home. This is my home. The king has ordered it so. Well, never mind the king. You're free to go, understand? Free? What is free? If you wish to go, you go. And if you wish to stay, you stay. That's being free. Then I am free. Because I wish to stay. But you're in danger. Danger? Why? Because we're different than your people. They fear us and may try to harm us. You're different, too. And if you're with us, it may remind them. What are you going to do? Try to get back to our world. There's nothing beyond darkness, my lord. Are you sure of that? Have you never in your life heard of a world of light above the darkness? No, my lord. Never. Well, then, let me, let me tell you about it. The world of light changes color with every heartbeat. There are mighty rivers and places where the land is covered with living things. And then there are the cities, beautiful cities, filled with many people like you and me. You're speaking of heaven, my lord. Maybe I am. Maybe I am. The next day, Roger and Judd tour the working facilities and marvel at the society's inventiveness, while at the same time, Ilinu is trying to convince his priest to steal the flashlight and stage a coup on the weak king. And that is not all. The king has shown weakness and poor judgment. He believes in the divinity of these intruders. Dealing with the divine is our office. If we abandon the smallest particle of it to outsiders, our position will soon come to naught. But... Are these outsiders not divine? No, they are mortal. Do they not eat when they are hungry? Do they not sleep when they are weary? When the guards attack them? Did not their faces show the fears of mortal men? But do they not possess the power of heaven? Ah, the cylinder they carry possesses it. If you had that cylinder, or you, or you, you could use it too. And if it is the power of heaven, is it not we who should possess it? and use it to control the beasts of the dark, the people, and, yes, if need be, even a faltering king himself. You will therefore follow these intruders wherever they may go, and bring me that cylinder. Later, Roger and Judd again stop a guard from beating a mole person, unwittingly causing the death of one of the guards. Over the next few days, while Roger searches for a way out of the cave, 
and he begins to fall in love with the gentle Adele. The mole people grow more rebellious. Sharu asks Roger for the flashlight to use as a weapon against the creatures, but Roger refuses, and instead Sharu orders three of the creatures whipped to death. Roger and Judd drain the flashlight's battery in order to put a stop to a beating, after which one of the mole people tries to communicate its gratitude. The creatures slow down their food production, and in response, Sharu orders three women to be sacrificed to the light of Ishtar, which is actually a crack at the surface, which through sunlight pours in, instantly burning the albino's flesh. Did you learn that song as a child? I did not learn it. I found it. It's beautiful. As beautiful as you are. No. I'm a marked one. The priest said so. They're so right. It's not only the color of your eyes, your hair, your cheek that mark you, but your heart also beats with tenderness. The love of your ancestors is there. Love? I do not understand. Well, if somebody has hurt and his hurt gives you pain, or if somebody has joy and his joy gives you pleasure, that's love. Adele, do you believe as your king believes that I'm one of your gods? No, my lord. Our gods are always angry and give orders. You smile. If I ever get out of here, into my world. The world of light and flowers? Will you come with me? Yes, my lord. My lord. What is it? The king wishes to see you at once. Captain of the guards has been found murdered. The beasts of the dark have done it. It is possible they intend to revolt. What about your guards? Cowards. They tremble at the sight of their own shadows. We do not want unnecessary bloodshed. We need the beasts. But with your cylinder of fire, you could bring them under control. We will not take part in any plan to punish your slaves. They are against us. They are evil. Ishtar has sent them. I say to you that she is not. Take their magic cylinder away from them, and you shall see then that they are powerless, and we will have that power. No, Eleanor. We will not challenge Ishtar. Have the guards arrest three of the beasts and beat them until they are dead. Soon after, Elenu discovers Etienne's body, proving that Roger and Judd are also mortal, mortal and orders them killed. The divine messenger who has gone to heaven. He was mortal, as we are mortal. And he is dead, as we shall soon be dead if we do not deal with the intruders. What do you advise? Give me freedom to act. You have it. Destroy them. To restrain them, the men are fed poisonous mushrooms and then pushed into the lighted area, which, unknown to Sumerians, poses no threat to them. Meanwhile, Adele notifies the mole people who attack the Sumerians and gain control, and then help Adele into the lighted area. 
eye of Ishtar. Adele. Sunlight. To your people, it was a burning death. But to us, it's life. You see, a long time ago, your people came from our world. You're a living proof that that's true. But they didn't understand. That's why they called you the marked one. It's warm. It's beautiful. And deadly for our friends of the tunnel. That's right. I'm afraid the world of darkness is theirs forever. The priests must have had this secret for thousands of years. Then finally the sun became too strong even for them. You will take me with you. Roger, Judd, and Adele easily climb the shaft to the surface of the mountain. As they leave the ever area, however, an earthquake tremor occurs, killing Adele and once again completely sealing off the entrance to the city below. And that's the end of today's movie. Now it's time for some movie trivia. Footage of the Mole People was later used in the movie The Wild World of Batwomen. That's a really, really, really bad movie. Don't watch it. It's like 68 minutes. You'll never get back. The Mole People was a double feature with the jungle adventure Kuruku, Beast of the Amazon. The humps on the mole people's back were done by stuffing the backs of the actors who played them with newspaper. I've got another story to tell you about that a little bit later. Uh, the mole people was shot in 17 days for $200,000. The mole people was written by Laszlo Gorek. He is the step-grandfather of comedian and podcast legend Adam Carolla. In the original ending, Dr. Bentley and Adele lived happily ever after. The studio, reluctant to imply interracial relationship, insisted on a new ending two weeks after the filming ended. Gotta remember, it's the 1950s. The Mole People has been featured on episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000 and Sven And that's all I have for movie trivia. Now it's time for the Star Trek connection. Everybody knows I'm a big Star Trek fan. And I try to find a Star Trek connection in every TV show or movie I watch. Believe it or not, there are three Star Trek connections in today's movie. The first Star Trek connection is Bob Hoy. He was one of the mole people in today's movie. He was also the man inside the Horta suit in the first season episode of the original series, Devil in the Dark. The second Star Trek connection is Bob Heron. He was also a mole person in today's movie. He was Jeffrey Hunter's stunt double in the original series pilot, The Cage. The third and last Star Trek connection is K.E. Cutter. He was one of the priests in today's movie. He was also Cyrek in the first season episode of Deep Space Nine, The Storyteller. And that's all I have for the Star Trek connection. Here are my comments about today's movie. I watched the 2016 DVD release from Universal Studios Home Entertainment. It was part of the classic sci-fi ultimate collection. It comes with Tarantula, The Incredible Shrinking Man, The Monolith Monsters, Monsters on Campus, and today's movie. The picture and sound quality on this DVD set is pretty good.
The only bonus feature you get is the theatrical trailer to all the movies. That's it. So, first of all, the movie is only 77 minutes long, so it moves pretty quickly. The movie starts with an opening narration from USC professor and TV personality Frank Baxter. The only reason I can think of putting this segment into the movie is to add some credibility to the movie or playing good old-fashioned pad in the runtime. The story's not complicated. It's about three archaeologists who find an underground city populated by a race of albinos who have enslaved the race of mole people. That's the story in the nutshell. Uh, the acting was fair at best. John Agar was pretty wooden in today's movie. Uh, Nestor Pava looked like he was having a heart attack the entire movie. Um, Cynthia Patrick, she was just as wooden as John Agar. But Hugh Beaumont and Alan Napier, they were the best actors in the whole movie. Hugh, Hugh Beaumont was a lot better than John Agar, in my personal opinion. And Alan Napier was great as a bad guy. I'm so used to seeing him play Alfred in Batman that I couldn't even imagine him being a bad guy. But he did a really good job in today's movie. Uh, the mole people. They're anything but frightening. All they did was get whipped and moaned the entire movie. Uh, the movie was definitely done on a budget. Everything from the costumes of the albino people to the mole people to the Sumerian temple in the town were all done on the cheap. All of the sets looked like they were made out of cardboard and drywall. The best looking set was the home of the mole people, which looked like it came right out of Dante's Inferno. That looked cool. Um, I forgot to mention that this movie has a lot of stock footage. All of the mountain climbing scenes were from... Uh, Sir Edward Hillary's expedition to Mount Everest in 1963. And there was a lot of stock footage. There was also a lot of rear projection work and some really bad matte paintings as well. And I mustn't forget to mention the styrofoam snow that was everywhere. It looked really, really fake. Uh, there are a couple things that stood out for me. First of all, Cynthia Patrick's character name. Is it Adele or a dad? The credits say a dad, they call her Adele throughout the whole movie, so which one is it? That's all I'm asking. Another thing that stood out was the maiden dance scene. There's always a dance scene in one of these kind of movies. Just like Catwomen of the Moon and Fire Maidens from Outer Space, there's always a dance scene. You can count on it. Um, the flashlight in this movie, an ordinary flashlight, is the ultimate weapon against albinos and the mole people until the batteries go dead then you're screwed. Um, there seems to be always a cursed girl in these type of movies that looks normal. You know, like Marilyn Monster in The Monsters. She, the poor girl, she's disfigured and she looks like a normal person. Or the girl, her name is Donna Dixon. She played Ellie Mae on the Beverly Hillbillies and she was in an episode of The Twilight Zone where she looked normal and everybody else had pig nose and crooked lip and they said she was ugly. Same thing. And then there's a sacrifice of the virgin scene that was really bad because they send these three women out to the, the fire of Ishtar. They come back just crispy. And it's like, dang, I'm surprised they showed the ladies arms and legs hanging off, you know, being the 1950s. Probably the best scene in the movie was the mole men rebellion scene when they're fighting against the palace guards. And there's a little a story behind that. They put newspaper in the humps 
for the uh, Molemen. And during this fight scene, they record they they did one take and it was great. But then after you could see all the newspaper, they got so physical that they ripped the newspaper out of the humps and it was everywhere. So they had to reshoot the whole scene again. And then the girl dies at the end. What the heck? No happy ending for her. That's crazy. Um, they had to reshoot the end because it was the 1950s and they, you know, a Sumerian girl and, and an American white man. There's no way that you could allow those to get married and be showed on TV. Just goes to show you that, man, the 1950s was pretty harsh. Um, the Mole People is by no means a great movie. It's not. It's a bad movie. But it's fun to watch. It's entertaining for what it is. It's a sci-fi B movie. B is in bad. Um, if you're a fan of the 1950s genre and haven't seen this movie, you should definitely check it out. You can watch it for free on YouTube along with Fire Maidens um, from Outer Space and Cat Women of the Moon. It's all they're all free on Amazon. Uh, I would recommend this movie to all science fiction fans. Uh, it's a great, it's a good science fiction movie, you know, to, to have seen once. I wouldn't say it's the best, but you got to see it at least once. On a scale from one to 10, I'll give the mole people a solid five out of 10. And those are my comments about today's movie. That's it for today's podcast. Before I wrap up today's podcast, I want to thank Rico again for giving me another opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoyed it. Rico will be back next week on the podcast. I'll end today's podcast with some music from Star Trek The Motion Picture. The track is called Inner Workings. I'll be back soon with another classic science fiction movie. Until then, everyone take care and stay healthy. This is M5 signing off.